Hi, my name is Charles Lepage, and you're listening to MIR Spotlight, the podcast that features the Writer of the Week as chosen by our editorial board. Today, we receive Angelica Chen to discuss her piece entitled Working as an OBGYN under China's One Child Policy. Angelica, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Angelica, would you like to tell the audience about yourself? Of course. So I'm a fourth year medical student at McGill. Okay, so let's jump in right away with um, the first question. So do you want to tell us a bit about your article and what made you decide to write about it? Of course. So my article details the experience of Ming, who was an OBGYN, so obstetrician gynecologist, during China's one-child policy in the 1980s. And a few ways that her work was impacted by the one-child policy include, for example, not being able to reveal the gender of the baby. It was actually illegal back in the days for OBGYNs to tell parents the gender of the baby to prevent sex-selective abortions against female fetuses. She also mentions how the main method of birth control was the IUD, which was mandatory for all women to have after a first child, and tubal ligation, which was mandatory after a second child. I chose to talk about Ming's story because I find that as Westerners, we have a very limited insight and perspective into what actually the one-child policy entails. There's really not a lot of stories on the web that we can read about what it was to be a healthcare back then. So that's why I decided to share Ming's story. And also, as a Chinese person myself, the one-child policy affected my family personally. So it's also something that's interesting for me. I'm a second child. I have an older brother that's nine years older than me. And the reason why we have such a huge age gap is because of the one-child policy. My parents were only able to have me once they left China. So I was was born in the US. And um, my parents often tell me that they don't regret leaving China because if they were still in China, they wouldn't have me. So um, the one child policy is also something that has really affected my family directly. It's interesting that you say that because in your article, you still say how Ming was so happy to help her country and she knew that these policies were still part of this patriotic effort made by the government and the population. All these policies that were and from 1949 onwards, often when we talk to the older Chinese generation, they were impacted by it, but are still willing to go with it and are thankful for what happened. That's a very interesting question. Thank you, Charles. So many Chinese people like Ming herself, they were indoctrinated with the idea that the one-child policy was the good thing for the country. So there were widespread information on, on TV and on just posters in every street corners about the benefits of the one-child policy. So many, many people like Ming truly believe that that was the good thing for the country. So you say that this personal perspective from being Chinese kind of enlightens the article. Mm -hmm. You are also a medical student, and it's pretty rare that the MIR has medical students and that they have the chance to write on public health. So how do you think that this perspective kind of influences the way you write the story or maybe gives you a new perspective? Mm -hmm. As a fourth year medical student, I've had to do six weeks in OBGYN. And I have to say that having done six weeks in that field, I can see that there are very striking differences in women's health care here in Canada in 2020 versus in China in the 1980s. So one thing that really struck me in Ming's testimony is how she did tubal ligations for two months, one after the other from day to night. That's really striking to me because in Canada, I can't imagine ever having the, the patient volume to be able to do something like that. In my experience, 
students, as a medical student, doctors are actually quite reluctant to do tubal ligations on women, especially if they're young, just because it's a permanent method of contraception. So I've seen doctors refuse doing tubal ligations to women in their um, late 20s who already have two children, and they say, well, you know, you could still want children in the future. So it's interesting how in China, having a tubal ligation is really a run-of-the-mill job, something that the government advocates for, versus here in Canada, it's actually the patient that has to convince the doctor to actually get the procedure done. So that was very interesting to me, just the difference about how tubal ligation is difficult to get in Canada, but in China, it was really pushed forward. And um, another interesting thing also is in terms of what kind of non-permanent contraception is used. In Canada and the rest of North America, the birth control pill, I would say, is by far the most common method of contraception. It's widely marketed, so it's not uncommon to see advertisement for the birth control pill in women's public bathroom here. But in China, it's actually quite rare to see someone on the birth control pill. In China, it's much more common to have an IUD. And for sure, the one-child policy really pushed forward the IUD into popularity in China. Another interesting thing is that China actually designed their own IUD to make it more difficult for women to remove it themselves. The IUDs that we use here have two blue strings that make it easy for the healthcare provider to remove it. You just pull on the string and the IUD is out. But in China, they designed their own IUD so that it was shaped like a ring. It could only be inserted surgically and it could only be removed surgically as well. So women aren't able to just remove it themselves. I'm going to touch upon something that you mentioned when you compare Canada and, uh, and China. So we often kind of put China as the authoritarian regime that was capable of putting such policies. But when you think about it, the U.S. also have all kinds of restrictions on contraception for women. Even Canada, what you just mentioned, because I guess you're talking about tubal ligation, mm -hmm. but we could probably say the same for abortion in some ways. But between countries, between China and what we think of as the West, do you want to talk a bit about the differences that you see? Mm -hmm. So I actually see some similarities between China and the West. In China, they have the one-child policy, which is quite unique to China, but the idea of governments wanting to control women's reproductive health is not something that is unique to China. If we think about the states, in many Republican states, they're trying to restrict the access to abortion to women. And if we think about Europe and Poland, very recently, they also banned abortion, except in cases of rape or when it's a danger to the health of the mother. So if we compare the West and China, they're both trying to control what women can and cannot do with their bodies, even though they're doing it in different ways. So let's dive further into social policies in China. So you mentioned in your article that there are different problems that kind of rise from this one-child policy. And the one that we talk the most about usually is population aging, because there were that many kids in 1949, like you mentioned, and onwards because of this push for manpower until they realized that they did not want to, that it was better to restrict, right? So there is kind of now this imbalance in terms of this aging population that the, gen that the younger generations need to take care of. Do you want to talk a bit about this? Yes. So I definitely think that with modernization, like other countries, China was probably trending towards an aging population anyways. But the one-child policy has definitely accelerated that trend. Um, and in China, there's this concept of filial piety, 
which is basically the obligation of the child towards the parent to ensure material comfort. The idea is that the parent has provided for the child housing, clothes. So the idea is that as a child, you are indebted to your parents who have raised you, given you food, shelter, clothes, and to repay them, then it's, it is expected of you to take care of them when they get old. That puts a lot of pressure on the younger generation because they have to provide financially and emotionally for their parents. It's easier for children to do that when you're three, four siblings trying to provide for your parents, but it's much more difficult when you're a single child having to provide for your parents. Do you think that modernization also contributes to kind of the erosion of these kinds of, you could say archaic values because we know that filial piety is deeply embedded in Confucianist thought, right? So it's more than just a, a money, a monetary transaction of I'm embedded in you, right? It's a lot about the concept of family, the concept of respect for elders. So do you think that with kind of the rise of this Chinese middle class cons consummation in China, the fact that they're more and more influenced by other countries traveling everywhere, do you think that there's an erosion of it or do you still think it's present? I think today? that slowly there is an erosion of that concept, but I do think that it's going to take quite a few generations before that concept completely disappears, if it does disappear. The older generation right now still has a lot of influence on the younger generation. So I think it's something that is still going to be ongoing for a while. But I do think that the younger generation nowadays is slowly moving away from this idea of filial piety. So this leads us to the next question, which is the often discussed in the one child policy, and even in the West, it has been talked about for the last decade, is the gender gap, right? We know even today that it's very important to pass the family name and to get a, and again, get a boy for different reasons, especially in rural areas. What do you think are the impacts of this policy in terms of the gender gap? First of all, I just want to highlight the fact that they estimate around 32 million more men than women. And to put that number into perspective, that's almost the entire population of Canada. So it's a very big number of men that outnumber women. And in China, there's a social pressure to marry that's deeply anchored in the culture. One consequence of the gender imbalance that has resulted because of the one-child policy is the fact that marriage is now way more competitive than it was back in the days. There's actually research that shows that there's a link between the one-child policy and the soaring prices of houses in China. Home ownership is seen as a symbol of status, and it's also seen as something valuable before marriage. So many single men will buy a house before even having a partner in order to be more appealing and more attractive to single women, given that single women tend to be more selective because of the gender imbalance. We know now that the one-child policy has been extended and, less, and made less restrictive by, having, by allowing two children per household. Why do you think they did it? And what do you think we can expect in the future in terms of all the social issues that we've mentioned and for the future of this mm -hmm. policy? I think the Chinese government is realizing that the one-child policy has accelerated the trend towards an aging population. And like many other countries, an aging population does result in other challenges for the society. So it increases the burden economically for the younger generation. There's a lot of other social issues that can be associated with that, such as healthcare. And so I think the push towards the two-child policy is to encourage families to have more children and increase the workforce. However, I'm not convinced that 
moving from a one child policy to a two child policy is necessarily going to slow down the trend towards an aging population. I think that Chinese culture has really shifted these last few years around a one child policy. Because of the one child policy, there's a few things like education that have become very expensive. Housing is also very expensive because of the competitive market. All of these things make raising two children in China very expensive and less appealing to families. Yeah, I've heard, you know, more and more families are going to try to stay with their one child and there's been a big trend now and you're talking about how expensive it is, but it's also in terms of the culture. Now parents are kind of used to this cellular family where it's their one child that they really take care of and that they kind of spoil more maybe. We've seen a trend of people saying of like the phenomenon of the child king and I've heard of a lot of parents that do not want to send their children to play dangerous sports, contact sports for instance. That's why individual sports are still very prominent in China while their team sports are developing elsewhere. Yes, I think that's very interesting and very true that China has evolved into a very one child centered culture. So it's going to be interesting to see in the coming years if families will be willing to have more than one child now that it is allowed. China is actually currently doing a population census where they've hired millions of people to call people, knock on people's door to really get a good idea of where the population is going demographically. And they're doing that so that they're able to be able to plan for the next five years how to organize resources for the country in terms of education and schools, in terms of healthcare, in terms of housing for the elders. So it's going to be interesting to see the results of that census and kind of see where China is going to go in the next five years. Thank you so much for coming to the show. It was a really good discussion. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week's MIR Spotlight. Thank you for listening and make sure to follow the McGill International Review on Facebook and Instagram for more quality content.